Welcome to episode 94 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for everyone who likes going out under the stars. How was your week, Shane? We finally did see some stars here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had we had stars, we had warmer temperatures and uh, no wind. Well, you know, no wind yeah. for, for as far as the prairies go. Um, mm. Yeah, it was really good. I, I was able to observe twice. Um, so I'm quite happy. How, how was your week? It was good. I, I, other than just like looking up while I was out for a walk or something, I, I didn't really uh, get out. I've had some other stuff on the go, um, but I did see uh, Cirrus flashing away uh, up there and we're kind of getting into a bit of a, of a full moon period. Uh, of course, now that it's warmed up and the skies have cleared out. So, so there's that too, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, you know, that seems to be the way it works. Yeah, uh, it's, it's good to observe, but now it's, you know, the moon's too bright to really do any dark sky observing. But, um, you know, good, good opportunity still, though, for double stars and, uh, and lunar observing, really, I, I was, uh, I, I saw an interesting feature on the moon this week uh, that I wasn't aware of until last night, actually. So, oh, yeah, what did you see? Um. Oh, what the heck here? Oops, what's going on? No, come back. Uh, Rupus, Rupus Recta. Um, oh, yeah? Yeah, are you familiar with that feature? I, I am not. I'm not as much of a lunar observer, so. Yeah, so so last night my plan was to observe, but um, the, the real goal, like with both of my sessions this week, was to see if I could split Sirius A and B. Mm. Um, but uh, as I was lounging around the house yesterday, uh, I saw a tweet from the local astronomy club and uh, they mentioned that last night was an opportune time to see the lunar wall. Uh, this feature has, you know, a few different names or. Okay. Uh, I've heard of this. Yeah. Lunar yeah wall. Or the straight wall. Um, so it's in, um, where is it here? It's in Mare Nubium and it's a, uh, it's a fault line that's about 110 kilometers long. And mm. uh, I think it's about two to three kilometers wide. Yeah, I'm looking um, but, at uh, some, I, I Googled it and looking at some photos here. It kind of is in like one of the open Mare regions, like the big flat plains. Yeah. And it kind of cuts uh, sort of between a, a couple prominent craters there. Yeah. And if, uh, if everything lines up where the moon's up at night and it's, a, it's day eight of the lunar cycle, um, the, the, the angle of the sun, you know, casts a bit of a, a shadow from this fault line because it's a bit of a ridge. Um, and it results in like this really dark line visible in amateur telescopes. And um, there, there's two things that stood out for me. You know, it's, it's big. Well, you know, three things. It's big. Um, it's a real dark line in a real bright spot. You know, that mare is quite reflective. Um, and mm -hmm. through like in photographs, you see that it's, it's an irregular line. Um, but through like an amateur telescope, it looks like somebody just took a pencil or a pen and maybe a ruler and just drew a straight line uh, in the mare. And that's kind of neat because everything on the moon is so irregular. Um, it's neat to see like a, what appears to be like a very straight line. It really stands out. It was, it was a neat observation. Cool. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Yeah. That looks like a neat, uh, neat thing to look up. Hey, hey I got to ask, did you have any luck trying to split Cirrus B from A? No luck. So <laughs> it looked um, pretty, pretty uh, unstable up there. I kind of thought, well, I don't think, I don't think it's going to be possible. Yeah. So I tried Thursday night and uh, Saturday night. 
Mm. Um, and I used two different telescopes and multiple methods. <laughs> so yeah. Thursday night, I, I took out the 120 millimeter uh, ED refractor and um, I started early. Uh, one, of the, one of the tips that I read quite frequently was uh, to try observing it while it's in twilight because uh, mm -hmm. that, you know, that seems to contain a little bit of the brightness or the glare. Um, but the problem with that here, especially, is it's very low in the sky at twilight. Um, so I, you know, at twilight, it was brutal. Like there was just, I don't know if there was any chance. Um, so I, I gave it, uh, I observed for about an hour and a quarter and, um, towards the end of that seeing had noticeably improved because of, of, uh, you know, serious climbing in the sky. Um, but it's still, you know, it still didn't work out for me. Um, I he was using magnifications from 100 up to 321. I was going up and down the magnification style, uh, scale um, and, and just wasn't able to get the separation. Um, largely what I did was just let it drift through mm -hmm. the entire field of view and then adjust the scope. Because um, the movement, the, like an object that moves stimulates, um, you know, the eye to a certain degree and sometimes allows you to tease out some fainter detail. Uh, so I, I tried that. Um, I tried, uh, especially like, you know, observing just as Sirius was moving to, uh, just outside the field of view. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just couldn't get it. So failed that night. Uh, then Saturday night, I thought I would try with the 76 millimeter tack with the Q extender in there, mm -hmm. uh, just to create like kind of the purest, clearest, crispest field I possibly could, um, started at Rigel. Um, so Rigel is the head of Orion. It's a double star and it's approximately the same distance as Sirius A and B. So mm -hmm. it's good to start there just to understand the scale of the separation, you know, so you mm -hmm. know about how far to look. Um, and, uh, the seeing last night was, was much worse, even though I waited much later in the evening so that I could get Sirius almost at its apex. Um, it just... Uh, I couldn't really go much above uh, 90 ish on the magnification scale oh, uh, and things yeah. just started to wash out. So yeah. Um, another tip that I read is that if you're, if you're trying to do this observation, uh, start with Rigel to get an idea of the scale, which I did. Um, but then next is to go to the trapezium in the, uh, in M42, the great Orion nebula. There's four prominent stars in the trapezium, A, B, C, D. But then there's another two stars, um, E and F, that um, aren't always easy to, to pull out. You need good seeing mm -hmm. conditions to see those two stars. Um, if you can't see those, it's probably not even worth trying Sirius A and B. And, you know, both nights that I failed, I did look at the trapezium and I was not able to find uh, the E or the F stars. So, yeah, uh, I guess that holds true. Um, you know, other things that I read was like persistence that, you know, the, the, the way, uh, you know, Sirius kind of blinks and fluctuates in the sky. Um, you just need to like basically stare at it until you see the separation and you might only see glimpses of it. It might be visible for a short period of time, but it will typically come and go. Mm -hmm. So both nights, I essentially just looked at Sirius A and B for like an hour, 15 minutes, hour and a half kind of thing, both nights uh, with a couple breaks, you know, to look at the Orion Nebula and a few other things and, you know, let the eye rest, but um, no luck, no luck. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, 
it it's tough. I've tried before, and uh, anyway, I, I think I sent you that article that uh, that I worked on with Randall and, and Clark, and yeah, yeah, we, I think Clark eventually got it in his twelve inch or five. I think he has the same uh, five inch refractor you do, the hundred and twenty ED. Yeah, but uh, it's tough. It's yeah. very tough. So, yeah, and, and it's all because of the glare, like like splitting Rigel with my 76 millimeter was no problem. You know, it, it's close. Like there, it's a tighter double, but yeah. the separation was obvious. I didn't need crazy amounts of magnification. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just that glare is really hard to control. And I was using, so just some other details about the gear. Um, I was using a Bader uh, T2 Zeiss prism, which is renowned for having some of the best light scatter control. Um, mm-hmm. I was using my TMB super monocentrics, which again are, you know, renowned to be one of the best, uh, if not the best at light control and scatter control. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the optical path, um, was pretty pure and I just wasn't able to, to get it. So, yeah. um, I'll keep trying. Hopefully I can knock it off the list here one of these nights, but, uh, you know, I think it really comes down to just, you, you need that night of really good seeing. And, yeah. um, if you don't have that, you're, you're just not likely uh, to achieve this observation. Yeah. You almost need to like, uh, I don't know, like, like just have, you know, ha- have a really long-term plan of like, uh, you know, having, having the scope set up like in your little, uh, dome in your yard and, you know, mm-hmm. whenever uh, Cirrus is going to be at the Meridian, uh, you know, have your alarm set, you know, and, and go out and and just do that until you mm-hmm. get it. Like you'd you'd probably get it in a season if you did that. But uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, I know. Like um, some of these things, like it looks so easy if you look on a chart or in software and that. And I, I know the one for me was the false comet there on the bottom of uh, Scorpius, um, and I. You know, I tried for years to get that. And then finally, I just uh, decided I would like, and you can actually see it about, um, you know, that region of the sky, about a mile from my, from my folks place. So I went down there for two weeks once and uh, I just get up every morning and I went out and, you know, it took a few mornings and I eventually got it kind of thing. But um, I had done that repeatedly for like years. <laughs> it was like a, like a ridiculous long time, but it was funny. I got it. And then the next day I went out and I got it again. So I had two mornings consecutively, mm. whereas uh, where, where I had never been able to, to see it before over the course of, I don't know how many years, like, like more than a decade, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, kind of a neat thing too, was this is the first time I had the, uh, the Takahashi 76 out, uh, since I put on that MEF dash uh, three focuser retrofit. Oh yeah. The um, micro focuser. Yeah. Fine, yeah. So fine the, focuser. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the TAC it comes with just a single speed focuser, but you can buy this thing. It's made by TAC and um, it, it's quite easy to install and it transforms the focuser into a dual speed. So you have the kind of the one-to-one course focus. And then I think the fine focus on this is seven to one. And hmm. it, it worked beautifully. It was so smooth. Oh, um, nice. I, I was really impressed with it. I'm, I'm very happy with it. Um, and it wasn't super cold, but like last night when I was observing with it, it was about minus 10 Celsius um, and no issues, you know? Um, yeah. And, and that's anything mechanical that turns, like whether it's a zoom eyepiece or, you know, the focuser. Um, the, to me, one of the key things is, uh, how does it do, um, in cold weather? And it yeah. was really good. The next test will be, how does it do with heavier, 
you know, eyepieces and diagonals on the back of it. Um, using inch and a quarter stuff, it doesn't really stress it very much, but, um, you know, yeah. putting a, the 31 millimeter Nagler in there, uh, would, would be the next test. Yeah. Cool. That was uh, a really great uh, sketch that Phil sent us. Really enjoyed yeah. seeing that sketch and the sort of speaking of the moon. I thought maybe when you mentioned the moon, that's where you're going to go. But uh, what was what was the crater that uh, that he had sketched there and was kind enough to send us? Do you remember? Uh, let me just pull up the email. Um, yeah, I think it yeah, begins it was, so, with K. Yeah, yeah, and he Ka- was Kai's pie. Yeah, Kai's pie. Yeah, and he was Is observing it? with his seventy. 76 millimeter, uh, little reflector and, uh, well, no, I, th- I think this was the Skyhawk. Um, Oh, was it? Oh, I thought it was, yeah. I thought it was the smaller scope. Let me just see here. I think, uh, yeah, it, it was the Skyhawk. Oh, was it? Okay. Millimeter, um, F 4.4. Uh, he was using the TMB 2.5 millimeter eyepiece and oh, okay. uh, said seeing was eight out of 10, which, uh, yeah, you know, based on, on the detail in his sketch, it, it probably had to be a really good night of seeing. Hmm. Well, that's great that he's getting that scope. But yeah, I find, I find for some reason when people, it doesn't matter who it is, but when people include images with the, uh, with a lot of text, I, it's very difficult to read um, in my email browser. I don't know oh, okay. why, but uh, yeah. So sometimes I kind of have to sort of jump around a bit in order to read it. So uh, my retention might not be what it, what it should be. So yeah, that was, that was really neat to, uh, to see, I guess he said that he hasn't had good weather either, but then he had uh, a good night or two. So that was nice to see. Yeah. 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 It, uh, it was. And, and then Larry, uh, sent us some more double star observations. Um, you know, he's, he's becoming quite the double star observer, or maybe he always has been, I'm not sure, yeah. but man, his, uh, his observations of double stars are just fantastic. Yeah. I was really interested to see those. Um, he was talking about like observing some of the Struve doubles there in uh, Eridanus or Eridanus or however you want to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was, it was just kind of neat. Um, made me, made me wonder a couple things. I wonder if Larry's uh, using um, or has ever used like, uh, like Webb's volume two uh, Webb's celestial handbook, because it's, it's mostly just double stars and it contains a lot of those. And uh, I think I recommend, did you buy that one, Shane? Webb's volume mm. two, the stars, or did you get the one on the planets? You, you told me to get the one on the planets and I inadvertently bought the stars. Well, that's <laughs> so, fine. Yeah. They're both, they're both really good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, that one is, is if you grab it and flip through it, it seems a bit dense. There's a lot, there's a lot, as I'd like to say, to unpack in there. If you were a project manager, you might say that. Um but it, it has tons and tons of, uh, of doubles. I mean, mostly it's just, just doubles. And then his descriptions are rather, uh, rather interesting, like two or three word descriptions, but um, kind of gives, uh, gives you a lot to go on there. So uh, mm-hmm. I was just kind of wondering if maybe he was using that. And then I was also wondering, I think, is he in Japan? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure where. Um, I think it's an urban area. If I remember correctly and uh, you know, I'm sure Larry will hear this, so correct us if uh, if we're wrong. But I think he's in a urban center with, um, you know, I don't know how much light pollution, but it's certainly not dark skies. Yeah, that's what I was wondering as well. And uh, uh, anyway, yeah. So those those doubles really make for uh, for some interesting targets if if you're under uh, under light polluted skies, I guess. Although I just for me, if it's not planets, I'm probably just going to go to dark skies or or not observe. Um, yeah, yeah. So hopefully, ho- hopefully we'll we'll get some some dark skies lining up with uh, with warmer 
air. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What well, one one other note too about Larry's double star observations is just how much color he noted in the stars mm-hmm. in multiple observations. Um, you know, and we've we've kind of brushed on this in other podcasts or previous episodes, just talking about how like color perception really varies from observer to observer. Some people are able to see, you know, color in various objects mm-hmm. while other people just can't see it. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think, I think Larry is kind of, I think he has some special eyes, uh, or, or, you know, one of the, I think he's in a bit of a minority in terms of how much color he's able to, to see, which is awesome, you know, and, and I think that makes double star observing even more interesting when you can see all sorts of star color, um, because there is, there is quite a bit going on in a number of these systems. Um, but, uh, it can be, you know, for some, it can be hard to tease it out. Yeah. I know, I know in Webb's book, he, uh, he also has notes. Primarily, he just says Struve, whatever location, which is in like uh, Epoch 1850 or 1875 or something. But if you buy uh, the 1962 edition, um, they have the corrections in, in the back. But anyway, um, and he'll note like the star is olive color kind of thing. Actually, he'll just say huh. olive colored or olive color and, and all like olive and then clr or something like that it's very abbreviated but uh yeah i don't know that i've ever looked at a star and said i think that star is olive colored shane so um <laughs> but but it makes me want to like so um kind of sort of moving uh along here um i've kind of finally made it through webs volume two properly <laughs> so i kind of so i've owned this book for a long time and like i said it's uh, it's dense. It's like about a 300 page book, but um, if, if you bought it kind of like when I bought it, I bought it about, about 15 years ago. Um, and, and I wasn't as an experienced observer as I am now. And it's, it's a bit esoteric, meaning it's, it's sort of exclusive to um, the age, which was uh, 1859 um, and then, and then as well, it's, it's just lists of mostly double stars, which, uh, I'm not as familiar with. I'm not, I'm not a double star observer at all. I, I could tell you that a Struve is a double star, but th- that that's the extent of it. But, um, in his book, in this book, um, of which is just primarily 90% of it is just lists after lists of mostly these double stars. Um, he does go on a fair bit about, uh, some of the areas around some of these doubles and uh, you know, how some of them are actually triples and that, and that sort of thing. And uh, you know, every once in a while I'd read a reference to it. It's, it's one of the most referenced uh, amateur astronomy observing books because it, it, it's simply a reference book really is what it is. Um, and then, you know, you'd, I'd be reading like Sue French and she'd be, you know, uh, I, I was recently reading through some of her deep sky wonders uh, one night I, I couldn't sleep. I was saying I was having some trouble sleeping recently and sat down and I was just reading through and, and she had like, I was like, Oh, I wonder if she's written much. And there was like two or three pages on, on just one set of stars alone. Uh, Web nine up there in uh, up in Cygnus. I was like, you know, that's, that's really interesting. Like she found, you know, typically when Sue French is writing about something, you know, she's, she's not looking just to fill pages. So, often one object might, might have a line, or if it's really a prominent thing, you might get a few uh, paragraphs or something, but uh, uh, you know, it's pretty surprising to see how much space she dedicated like to web nine and uh, a couple of the other uh, objects. And so it really made me think, well, 
you know, if, if some of these are that interesting, um, if you kind of look at, at some of the, some of the writings by uh, Sue French and others, um, I thought, well, if I kind of use those as a bit of a guide, maybe I'll go and pull out the other ones in web that would be, uh, that would be interesting as well. So I thought it would take me a few nights. It took me a few more nights than that. Yeah. So, so you've been working on this for a little while. And, yeah. Um, again, what's the kind of, what's the objective there just to refresh all of the listeners? Um, well, <laughs> the objective was simply just to pull out the, the items in his uh, celestial objects for common telescopes that, that would be interesting to look at. So um, not that all double stars are interesting, but I'm not really a double star observer. So anywhere he mentions things um, in and around the double stars, like maybe there's a galaxy or a bright area in the Milky Way or something, um, I decided to go through and pull all those out because when I've, when I've read other people writing like Sue French, she'll, she'll write, okay, about this web nine, um, which was just a set of, uh, I think it was like three stars up in Cygnus. And like, then he just very briefly will describe that area as a general area of interest, but it kind of, if you're just looking through his list, it kind of leaves the reader hanging a bit. Like you're like, Uh well, that's really not much of a description. Like, pretty group or something like he'll write two words right um but it turns out that some of these are really really great fields of interest he was just uh not a verbose person if he had a podcast they'd be like 30 second podcasts right um (laughs) but uh but but i thought well someone i always thought this i thought someone should really go through and just pull all those out and i thought why hasn't anybody done this well I've done it and I can tell you why, <laughs> because it's pretty tedious to go through it and yeah. it, it takes a, a ridiculous amount of time. So I estimate it would take me like three or four days. It took me four weeks. Wow. Through it. So, so that's a long time of basically sitting down and I probably averaged about three hours a day on it and actually went properly. Uh, by actually going and cross-referencing through uh, four other uh, uh, works um, like uh, Smith's Light Celestial, uh, well, the Bedford Catalog by Admiral Smythe and, uh, and Planetarium Software, as well as, uh, you know, several uh, prominent uh, reliable star charts and that sort of thing. Um, because one of the things that, that you quickly realize is that because the... Uh, these items are, or the ones that he's focused on are all mostly, they're mostly going to be in the Milky Way, right? And the Milky Way is a very dense area. And now because of that, when you're going back to 1850 or 1875 coordinates or whatever he used, uh, it's off by maybe as much as a degree or so in the sky. Now, if it's a big blank area of sky, like maybe I think there was like an object in Eridanus or something or things like that, uh, you know, you, you go and you can see like, oh, there's a little grouping of stars, but there's nothing else around. But if you're like up in Cygnus or Sagittarius or somewhere, well, that's hugely dense. So you, you have to, uh, what you end up having to do is sort of to explain my methodology is you, you have to find objects that you can properly carry forward and identify. So for example, if you took a Struve double star, okay, and then you compared its current location with its past uh, location from 100 and whatever years ago, um, and then you, you carry that forward to the coordinates for this sort of quote unquote unknown object that, that he just noted as maybe like a pretty group or a pretty pair or something like that, 
mm-hmm. then you can kind of put your finger uh, on on the chart. And then what what I would do to kind of test myself is there are objects in there that are known that that he found, and uh, and I sort of blindly ignored the fact that I knew that, and then I sort of traced those ones out just in the course of going through the text. And you know, surprisingly, still I think I missed one um, that that was already a known object, even though I knew that object should be in there. I think I still missed missed one of the. Uh, I think there's six or seven objects, but uh, but anyhow, um, so I've got that done. Like I said, I thought it would take a few nights. It took me a month, and uh, I thought it might cover like a dozen or maybe two dozen pages, and I end up getting sixty pages. Um, down of notes and finer charts. So, so then what I did is, as I did each object, because it, it turned out it was a fair amount of work to figure out which object uh, he was referring to, like which set of stars or whatever. And then still, sometimes there's nothing there. So you might go through this whole process, might take you two or three hours, and then turns out there's, there's nothing there, right? There's not mm-hmm. even stars plotted. You can't find them on a... So clearly things were off. And I did find a couple instances where where he got, you know, right ascension and declination numbers reversed so that, you know, an object was five or six degrees farther away. Even when I knew what object he was talking about, the, the coordinates were, were off for some reason. But, hmm. uh, but then what I did, and I, I sent this to you as I kind of pulled out like the salient mm-hmm. bits for the ones that I kind of thought were, were pretty good slam dunks of about uh, sort of 10 uh, really interesting objects and uh, and i sent those those along to you and and that that's probably a good place to start some of the stuff though it's just like really i can't find anything here like here's sort of a pin in the star chart i can't find anything here so after you know sometimes hours of work i still didn't find anything there right it, it must be some sort of positional error um and then sometimes you know, he'll, he'll refer to common stars. Like I think one was like gamma Aquilae. So the bright or uh, uh, whatever it is, the sixth brightest star in Aquila. And, and he'll talk about like stars radiate, radiating out in all directions. And I'm like, I never, like I've looked at gamma Aquila. I've never noticed that, but now I'm like, well, kind of sort of refreshing my look on, mm-hmm. on the nighttime sky. So, and the other thing is sort of the, the thing that really kind of motivated me to do this is that Webb um, was using a seven or a three inch and seven tenths scope. So a c- three and seven tenths inch scope, which is how he referred to it. I-, I think that's about a 95 millimeter telescope, which was pretty common back then. Cause I think, I think beer and Mulder, they, they created their, uh, their great chart of, of Mars using a 95 millimeter. So I think those were pretty common with uh, an F 16 or a five odd foot focal length. So this is kind of like pretty close to uh, the common uh, refractors that we all use now, these, these 80 to say uh, 100, uh, 110 millimeter telescopes, like most of these mm-hmm. objects would, would fall within that realm, knowing that, you know, his telescope was really good, but it was older. So it wouldn't have the modern reflection coatings or, or modern eyepieces. So probably, you know, a, a pretty good 85 or 90 millimeter would, would be pretty analogous, 100 millimeter, which most people own, uh, would probably be noticeably better, but still with, within the range. Um, so anyway, just, just kind of an interesting uh, project. And then you kind of got to figure out like what powers was he using. It was interesting. Like he'll talk about like a low, his low power was like 64 magnification. Like that was sweeping power to him. Hmm. I guess, I guess with that long of a focal length, um, you know, 
low power, like, like what we consider low power is probably a little harder to accomplish because also, you know, I don't, I I'm guessing there wasn't an astronomy store that he could, you know, place an order for, you know, any focal length of eyepiece. I kind of imagine you'd have two or three eyepieces and, and that might be it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so he, he mostly used the 64 power, which I think was probably like around a, a 50 degree Kellner or something uh, to yeah. that effect. Anyway, pretty, pretty close. So he was probably getting maybe at most three quarters of, of a degree of uh, field of view. But that said, he, he would have probably had a pretty sharp three quarters or getting close oh, to yeah. that, uh, uh, degree field. You know, and, and I thought and I, and I wouldn't mind boring like one of your Kellners uh, at some point if you if you would oblige. But uh, oh, sure. I think probably I'm going to, you know, mostly use like my finder eyed pieces and then, and then use my, I have a, a ductile 12 and a half millimeter, uh, 84 degree field. Um, you know, and I kind of, I can kind of look in and then know that I'm using generally about the same within like less than 10% error, um, slightly lower power, but I have slightly more, um, you know, uh, aperture. So kind of, I'm thinking probably about 60 power, is, is going to be analogous to his 64 power in that telescope. Um, and then, you know, I can kind of just sort of focus on the center, knowing that, that uh, I would have about twice the field of view there uh, that, that he would have had like sort of angular wise anyway. So anyway, it's just, just kind of interesting, just kind of an interesting project. And uh, yeah. you know, this, this is sort of what some of our podcasts are about is just saying like, well, what we're working on. And I mean, I have no, for a lot of the stuff that I do, <laughs> There's no, there's no uh, benefit really to anybody other than myself, but I will spend an inordinate amount of time doing this sort of armchair prep astronomy for my, uh, for my observing sessions. <laughs> no, I think it's awesome. Um, now regarding your Doctor 12 and a half, um, I have a tack Kellner that, that I think is 12 millimeter, maybe it's 12 and a half. Mm. Um, so it would be neat even to, um, just compare and contrast the two eyepieces, um, on the same object. Yeah. Um, and then another neat thing that we could maybe do, um, uh, you, you know, you take your hundred millimeter out. I have the, uh, the Tasco 10 TE, the 76 millimeter F15, um, you know, obviously much less aperture, but Mm. it would be, it would be neat to look at the same objects, um, and just compare the, the differences again between 76 millimeters and a hundred, um, and just see what it looks like. Uh, And honestly, probably there's almost as many variables as, as the aperture improvement allows, like, you know, having, having owned 80 millimeter scopes before I can almost definitively say that, you know, sort of on a, on a given night of poor to mediocre conditions, they're probably, there's probably a little bit of a toss up. And then uh, if you were under excellent conditions, you would, you would notice, notice the difference, but, but basically mm-hmm. probably in a, on a, on a poor night, you're not going to see the difference, but if you took your 76 out on an excellent night, and then I took my hundred millimeter on a poor night, um, the 76 would, uh, would likely outperform it, uh, uh, you know, in, in the, in the better conditions versus the, the hundred millimeter under the worst conditions. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I certainly know that the hundred millimeter would, would outperform it. I'm, I'm curious a little bit, just the difference in views between a 76 and a hundred mm. um, and, yeah, and you know, ac- acro versus apple all, you know, there, there's a lot of variables there that would be neat to just see how it presents the, uh, the object differently. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I'd uh, I definitely be up for uh, be up for that kind of uh, kind of session. So hopefully here, I guess it's about I think it's about two weeks, and then we have our our new moon uh, period. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm kind of kind of looking looking forward to that as uh, as our COVID numbers hopefully continue to decline here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So are, are you thinking of a dark sky session in a couple of weeks? Oh, oh, oh yeah. 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 So okay. yeah, I would, I would definitely be uh, wanting to go somewhere darker, whether it's just sort of nearby darker or, yep. or whatever. Um, but even just, just to sort of, sort of go, uh, you know, 15 minutes outside the city. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I would much, much prefer to go and do an hour like, like that somewhere and actually start trying to, uh, trying to figure some of this stuff out, probably not too far because uh, like, I just kind of want to take this list. So I'm just kind of starting to try to organize it now. Um, the one challenge you get into, of course, is, you know, I, I wasn't prepared to have um, to produce this much information or this mm. much kind of data. I thought I would end up, like I said, with maybe, maybe a dozen or so objects and end up with uh, I think around 120 or something like mm. that. And with 140 finder charts. So that's a lot. <laughs> that's, that's like an, that's like an observing guide basically. Cause there's very little text, right? I just did like mm-hmm. two lines on each, on each one, just with webs notes and any notes that I might have. Um, so uh, I kind of need to start figuring out, okay, like, well, what constellations do I want to hunt down first? So each constellation might have between one and maybe four objects in it. So then it's going to be like, okay, well, Gemini had a few and it's up nice and high. There's a couple in Puppis and uh, a couple in Orion. And uh, I think there's one in Monoceros or Monoceros. And, you know, so probably start there and then, you know, uh, kind of work my way uh, through the sky as, as the year progresses. But I, I think, I think it's about a year's worth of observing. I would, I'm guessing like, like, oh, I, yeah. like I, yeah. I probably wouldn't do much more than 120 new uh, objects in, in the course, uh, in the course of the year, but I was trying to figure out if I'll make it like I thought, wow, geez, this is almost like a painful amount of, of uh, text. Like I just started going through trying to kind of move the images and then around. So I might just, I might actually break it into chapters and then, uh, and then just like, or, or into constellations and then just kind of move or maybe even like seasons or whatever sessions. And then, um, kind of make them more like um make them more like an, um, an observing guide so i could have like a like the detail on the object and then i could have the finder chart and then i could have an area for like my description and a sketch kind of thing um might might be the way way to do it because i don't know how else i'll i'll do it originally i thought well i'm just going to have 12 or 15 objects maybe and then i could just use my regular, um, sketchbook. And that's, that's typically all I'd use. I'm not any more organized than that, but I think this is going to, going to require, um, sort of a, a fairly large, uh, step up in, uh, you know, in, in that kind of process of, of cataloging what I'm observing. So could be, could be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. If, uh, if listeners are, are kind of interested in this and maybe following along with their own observing, um, do you plan on posting any of this to the website or, or making any of it available? Well, I'm, I'm a little bit reluctant in that at this point, because like, unless somebody is super interested, especially, um, somebody who's, who's interested in double stars, um, and deep sky observing, maybe like yourself, Shane, um, if somebody has like a really specific interest, um, you know, maybe, maybe they would, 
they would reach out and, and I, I probably wouldn't have too much trouble sharing some things. Um, but part of it is, is that I wouldn't want to, cause sometimes I, I see this and I've, I've certainly done this in the past where like these projects are just simply fun and exploration for my own kind of ends. And, and I guess like in describing it, um, and one of the main benefits I had when I joined um, an astronomy organization is that other people were doing things like this and then describing them at meetings. And I would go and say, Hey, like, can I get a cup? They're like, well, it's kind of my own thing. Like if you're interested, but I, I don't know, like, are you really interested in this? Like, I'm just kind of describing my process here, my own interest um, in, in, in the hopes that if other people are kind of exploring the, the night sky and reading old books or, or new books or whatever, that they can kind of take this and say, oh, well, like that, that's how you can actually use this kind of information uh, that's out there to kind of create your own uh, explorations uh, of the night sky. But I, I thought people like yourself, Shane, might be interested for, for the simple fact that, you know, a lot of these are double stars with uh, quote unquote interesting fields uh, around mm-hmm. them. But if I simply put it out there and then like, uh, like, you know, just sort of like the, the average observer grabbed it and started to take them look, they're like, what is this garbage? Right? Like, I mean, and I've never looked at, I've never looked at the majority of the stuff before myself. So I'm not really sure there, there could be lots of uh, things there that are just non, non-existent. And I've done that before where I've posted something and then somebody comes back, they're like, oh, well, that, that isn't there. I think it's this or whatever. And I'm kind of like, well, don't focus on what I say. <laughs> you know, like, I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of exploring the night sky based on uh, sort of some some interesting notes that, that I read from Herschel. It was was the most recent one, and and there was a couple observers that were writing me recently, very experienced observers that are really into this, and they were like um, trying to determine, you know, sort of what I meant, right? And and sometimes like I, like I'm just sort of kind of given the straight goods, the historical goods, and and seeing where where we can go with that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to plug away at it. Um, my biggest problem right now is I've got too many darn lists on the go. I've, mm. you know, I've got the, um, uh, the, um, Omira stuff with the four inch, um, mm-hmm. you know, like the, uh, why can't I, the hidden treasures and yeah. I don't know, he's got three or four books. So, you know, I'm, I'm interested in those. Um, I'm interested in the new RASC double star list. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm interested in, uh, the, uh, the showpiece or I forget what he calls them, but the Cambridge double star Atlas, um, has like a top 100, you know, and that one interests me. Um, yeah. So it's just a matter, I think of either like combining all of these lists into one so that when I'm, Mm. you know, looking in, uh, you know, pick, pick your constellation that I'm, I'm looking at all of those objects. I, I'm not really sure how to approach this, but I feel a little overwhelmed sometimes with, <laughs> you know, well, what should I look at tonight? I've, I've got yeah. all these things on the go. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I kind of fall a little bit into the same boat. So um, I'm typically not necessarily following a list somebody else has created. So uh, sort of, I guess, with one, one moderate exception, which is what I call the classic RESC observing list. Which, uh, which was put out in, I think, 1979 or 1980. Anyway, um, and that, that's sort of the one that I think, uh, well, I'm not observing the whole list. There's just, I think, 36 objects on there that I'm, that I'm interested in. So it's kind of, I've kind of pulled a subset of objects from uh, an older list from the RESC before they had observing certificates. Uh, they had this, this list. 
And I just think it's, it's a super cool list. Like it's an awesome, awesome list, but then they ended up, um, in my opinion, kind of throwing, you know, and this was inadvertent. Um, it wasn't by design. Uh, the, the baby ended up getting thrown out with the bathwater, so to speak, because, uh, you know, they, they started coming up with these, these lists and they didn't want to have duplications and, and that sort of thing. Um, so then these, these lists kind of got, got left, uh, you know, sort of in the annals of history. And then as the digital age has come on, they've, they've been, you know, otherwise I never would have had access to them. They've been scanned and, and put, uh, put into the archive and take, take some digging to kind of go through and, and find that kind of stuff. But uh, I enjoy that. So I'm working on this uh, old list from the RESC. I'm working on observing the, the really large and, and dim nebulae, especially around Orion. Um, when we get the years where you can do it, some years like this year, it's just too cold. Um, and then, uh, you know, doing this web stuff. And then there's another historical uh, project that, that I'm working on. That's again, something I've been working on for probably six or seven years. Um, you know, almost like in a way, like no end in sight for some of these, it's not really like getting, getting finished them. Isn't the goal. <laughs> it's the fun <laughs> of the fun of doing them. So, yeah. Yep. It's not the destination. It's the journey. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, you know, it's just kind of, yeah. I, I just think it's kind of interesting. Um, sort of on that note that the one, one person, I forget who, who it was, but they, they wrote about this a lot on cloudy nights. Um, there was somebody that went through and observed, like, I think everything in Burnham's celestial handbook. Um, everything. Is, I think they observed, yeah, I think they observed oh. everything in there. Yeah. And it took I didn't them even like, think that would be possible. <laughs> yeah. And it took them, they were like in the desert and good equipment Jeez. and that's dedication. Wow. Yeah. And it, it took them however long. I, you can look it up on cloudy nights. It's, it's mm-hmm. a fairly famous observer. And I, I don't want to say, cause there's, there's lots of well-known observers, but it, it, if you saw the name, it was somebody you'd be like, Oh yeah, well, I could see that person doing it. Um, and yeah, so, so that's what they did. And then they kind of compared their notes with Burnham's a bit, but you know, that, that's just like a personal project, right. That that person did. Uh, mm-hmm. It's really cool. Uh, like our, our friend here in Saskatchewan, Mark Bratton, uh, he went through and observed uh, all the Herschel objects. <laughs> Again, yeah. something that, that very few people uh, have done. And, and he wrote a book um, on that or put a, put a book together. It's, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, again, like a, like a really good reference. Uh, book it's probably the best guy. one. Like if, if you're into Herschel objects, it's, yeah. the, it's the guide to have. Yeah. Cause what? yeah, he, he did them all. So what's the name of it again? Um is it the complete guide to the Herschel objects? Yeah, I think that's what it is by Mark Bratton. Yeah, I'm just going to look it up here. Yeah, yeah, it's an awesome book. And what I love about it, not just like the descriptions, but Mark is an outstanding sketcher. And yeah. he sketched every object he observed and then included a subset of these sketches uh, in the book. So not not every object has the, the associated sketch, but um, there there's quite a few sketches there. Yeah. And um it's neat because, you know, I think he did a lot of that list with what was it the, a king, like a 15 inch and a 17 inch Newtonian. I can't yeah, remember. He, he had a 15 inch and then I think he finished it up with the 18. Um, I forget the name of the 18. Light, a, light something. Light box. Yeah. Light box, so the 15 yeah. was the uh, Tec- Tectron that Mike yeah, has yeah. now. And then, yeah, then he, then he finished it up with the, with the 18, but when he, when he was still working with the 15, 
I can't remember. Did, did, did he finish the book before we started observing it or was he, he was just finishing it, I think. So anyway, um, I think like the first time I observed with him, he was, he was getting towards the end or I could be mis, misremembering. He, he, when, when we started observing with him, I believe he had most of, if not yeah. all of the Northern stuff done. He, he, there was a few Southern constellations or, or Southern objects that he needed to get down. He went to the Atacama desert. Yeah. Um, and then he went to, I think, Big Bend in Texas to finish right. it off or get a few more. Yeah. Right. Cause it, it came out in 2011. We kind of observed a bit in, in uh, sort of the year or so prior. Uh, yeah. And I think he was actually doing, I, I, like I said, I could be wrong, but I think I was with him when he did the veil <laughs> nebula <laughs> of all oh. things, right. Of all the most obscure and strange things that are, that are in, in this, uh, whatever it is, 74 or 7,800 object. Uh, work um that would be probably one of the most well-known ones so um i was actually there and, and witnessed his observing style anyway which was uh, quite astounding and really inspirational to me and my observing yeah so, yeah yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, the the one comment i was just going to add about mark's book is um i love the sketches because of it you know because it is larger aperture and i'm a smaller refractor guy hmm. it's just neat to to kind of live vicariously through the big aperture folks and, and see some of those sketches. And, and what I love about the sketches is it's, that's what you see with your eye, you know, not yeah. like an overproduced photograph, which, you know, those are beautiful, but it's, it's not what you see with your eye through a telescope. Yeah. I chatted to him recently and oh. uh, actually, cause he, he is uh, in the web society and I was looking mm. for, for an article um, from the web society from uh, quite a few years ago and uh, he's uh, and I wrote him and I said, hey, I'm looking for this article and here's like the date, volume, author kind of thing and didn't hear back. And then two days later, he he sent it to to me, actually sort of retaped it out or something like that. Um, really appreciate that. It was, it was pretty cool because uh, there's really no other way for 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 me to to obtain the information I was looking for. Um and I'm just, like I said, just working on it for my own personal project. Um, and uh, anyway, so get into a bit of a conversation and uh, kind of, I want to try to have him on the show uh, at some point, kind of, we're going to do the next episode on, on deep sky objects and, uh, and sort of then kind of walk through some of the historical figures in observing deep sky objects over the next several months. And I thought it would be cool if we can line up to have him on uh, to talk about the Herschel object since he's, uh, mm. he's, he's one of the uh, renowned experts on the Herschel object. So um, if we can work it out, but I think he'll have to call in. So we'll have to, we'll have to mm. overcome that, uh, that technical challenge because uh, internet where he lives uh, ain't what it is uh, in the rest of the globally connected universe. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that would be great if we could get him on. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it would be uh, it would be a lot of fun. So, um, yeah, I you know keep meaning to to badger him to get down and uh, and try out his his observatory too would be would be kind of fun uh, once this uh, once this pandemic is over. But uh, we used to observe together from time to time. But then once uh, I got busy working on on the past couple of work projects I've been on, it just uh, ends up eating into too much time. So. Mm-hmm. Well, Shane, unless you have anything else to add. That is all, my friend. Draw a line in the sand here. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll thank you for, uh, 
for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.